of critical importance. As the two soldiers were trying to prevent utter loss of human life, physical life, Paul was trying to prevent the utter loss of souls to potential apostasy by recovering for the Galatians what the true gospel of Christ entails. And so as a reminder, and especially for those who weren't here last week, these churches scattered across Galatia, we would think uh, probably modern-day central Turkey, a huge region, mostly planted by Paul and their gospel team, we found out last week that some of them, maybe, maybe many of them, were deserting Christ by running to distorted gospels. Not that, that there are other gospels out there, Paul argues in chapter 1, but there has been a malicious attack on the integrity of the true gospel. We talked about last week that distortion, that word distortion, again, is not completely replacing one thing wholesale, but adding and subtracting from the original, and thereby making something completely different. So that if people want to change even 1% of the gospel, that's no longer the gospel, and is considered a distortion. You see, these opponents and troublemakers, as, call, as Paul calls them, are keeping the language of, it's okay, you can say believe in Jesus Christ, but adding a whole lot of other things to this gospel, as we'll see later in chapters 3, 5, and 6, it's, it's scattered throughout. Namely, to add on your faith to Jesus Jewish cultural and traditional requirements, such as food laws and festivals, and especially, of course, physical circumcision for men in order to be saved. So these opponents, who we can assume are Judaizers from the context of this whole letter, are trying to persuade these mostly Gentile believers in these churches to seal the salvation deal by becoming quote-unquote Jewish. You're almost, you're at the one-yard line, Gentile believers, now go all the way, seal the salvation by becoming essentially Jewish. Well, if you have your Bibles open in front of you, we'll actually look at the previous verse from last week, verse 10, because I think this will grant us a greater context, a segue into Paul's defense of his own apostleship and authority, and why they should truly listen to Paul explain again what the actual gospel is, and to throw off any inclination of thought and heart towards these false gospels out there. And so I just want to organize this with two main headings for this uh, rather long text. Number one is in defense of the true gospel. That's from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. And that will include talking about Paul's apostolic authority. And then the second main heading, entrusted with the true gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So in defense of the true gospel and entrusted with the true gospel. So let's look back at verse 10 if you have your Bibles to kick us off. Verse 10 says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Last week's text showed us that Paul was completely against any meddling of the true gospel, the good news that proclaims that Christ was sent by the Heavenly Father to die for our sins once and for all and was raised again. That his righteousness that was perfect is ours through faith because of his atoning sacrificial death. And so this was enough to be saved, it believed and received, because this is all about God's free and unmerited gift of grace. But for Paul's opponents, this is way too easy for them. 
This must be simply made up from Paul's perspective so that he could become more popular and gain supporters. Paul rejects that notion and says, I wouldn't be a servant, or literally it's translated from the Greek, slave of Christ, if I were playing that game. Noted New Testament scholar Frank Thielman notes well, quote, Paul is not concerned about what people think, but what God thinks. And so Paul lists off three more four statements to explain and defend himself in the gospel. And I'll use those statements as my subheadings for our main heading in defense of the gospel. The first subheading is this. The gospel is of God. The gospel is of God. Look at your Bibles in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. He is pleading with the Galatians Don't be fooled by what the false teachers are saying. And he's saying this gospel did not originate from me or even from the original apostles. This gospel of free grace is entirely of God and entirely from God. The origin is completely divine. We didn't add any edits or make the gospel easier in its content. No man can come up with the uh, the intricacies of the gospel of grace Paul is saying this has to be divine, and it is from God. And you need to trust this gospel because it's directly from him. And so the next four statement is verse 12, and is our second sub-point. The gospel is received through Christ, not through man. So the gospel is of God, and now the gospel is received through Christ. Verse 12 says, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You might think brothers and sisters, that you receive the gospel from a parent, a Christian friend, a youth worker, a pastor, a Christian co-worker. And of course, the gospel is shared from people to people. And this is different, of course, from how Paul received this and was taught this from Christ himself. And of course, the gospel is proclaimed and taught to us from the pulpit and one-on-one, of course, But you know what? The truth is, spiritually speaking, at the core of this, you received the gospel of Jesus Christ from God himself. Through his word and by the power of his regenerating Holy Spirit, you have received the gospel of God from God. And now to the third sub-point is this. The gospel is received for a greater purpose. The gospel is received for a greater purpose. This takes us all the way from verse 13 to 24. What is the purpose of receiving the good news from God? Of course, salvation, most assuredly, the forgiveness of sins, the word that we will not perish but have eternal life, the news that we are not no longer enemies any longer but actually children of God. These are wonderful truths and the purpose of the gospel. But the ultimate purpose of the gospel, my friends, is the glory of God. And in this section, verses 13 through 24, the beginning of his shortened autobiography as a gospel freedom fighter, we see a window into God's wonderful purposes. And since I didn't read from verse 18 onward before, let me pick up that reading from there again. Verse 18, then after three years... After his conversion, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's just Peter's Aramaic name, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. 
Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Paul, in verses 13 through 14, speaks of his former life earlier in the chapter as a violent religious zealot who wanted to convert everyone to Judaism, meaning to conform to all things Jewish religiously and culturally. And if you didn't like that and you were against this, he persecuted you. And history tells us that he seemed pretty talented at doing so. Some of you might remember his testimony, Philippians 3, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee completely devoted to the law. He was basically in the number one slot amongst his peers, a first-round draft pick. He was a star. Yet he miraculously came to consider all of that rubbish in Philippians 3 in order that he might gain Christ, as the text says. The gospel received, was received by Paul through the power and revelation of Christ himself so that he may bring the good news to the Gentiles, verse 16 says, and how could this happen? Well, as verse 15 points out, only by the grace of God. He was actually set apart for this before he was even born. Before the creation of the world, God knew Paul and set him apart for this work. God didn't just wait to see Paul grow into this persecutor and religious zealot and think, hmm, I think if I save this guy, this is going to make a nice story. No. This was all part of God's ordained plan from before creation. Paul's conversion and mission was directly from God. Paul's transformation is a testimony of the power of God. Paul's purpose continually pointed back to the glory of God. And look at verses 23 to 24 again. This just gets me so excited and encouraged. They only were hearing it said, he, he was a guy that was persecuting us. He's preaching the faith that he was trying to destroy utterly, completely, wholly. Verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. This is critically important, friends. Not because of Paul, the man, but they glorified God because of what God had marvelously done in this depraved persecutor named Paul. A fourth century theologian and preacher once wrote, quote, he, who is Paul, does not say they marveled at me, they praised me, they were struck with admiration of me, but he attributes all of this to grace. They glorified God, he says, in me. When I was working on this section this week, I smiled, I stood up, I walked around my living room a little bit, I paced a bit, I was filled with joy, and I was smiling, and I said, thanks be to God. This is true of me too. I wasn't a persecutor and religious, religious zealot, of course, or of a Hebrew of Hebrews, obviously, but I was just as depraved, just as lost, but now I'm found. Now I'm freed. Now I'm repurposed for his glory. I've not arrived. My conformity into Christ's image is ongoing but I've been transformed by the grace of God. And I just smiled as I was walking around the living room with joy, thinking of how God has changed me. How often do we do that? To say, am I different 
from before I knew Christ? Of course, am I different from 10 years ago or five years ago or even last month or last year? It reminds me of John Newton's famous quote, that former a slave trader who wrote the song, hymn, Amazing Grace, a spinoff of Paul's words elsewhere in the New Testament. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am what I hope to be in another world, meaning heaven. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Has anyone said that of you? And they glorified God because of me. Again, not because of anything innately good in you, but they glorified God because only God could do that type of transformation in you. Remember his grace in your life with joy, my friends. I hope that's relatable, to remember the grace of God. And in defense of the true gospel and Paul's apostolic authority, we are reminded that the gospel is of God and not man. The gospel is received through Christ, his word, and by his spirit. And the gospel is received for a greater purpose. And in looking in chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, we see that Paul is saying, look, my reception of this gospel, my training in the gospel, my everything in the gospel was apart from man, human training, or even training from the original apostles. And sure, three years after he was converted, he spent 15 days with Peter and Saul, James, and Jerusalem, but the churches didn't have access to him during those many, many years. His calling was apart from man and holy from God. I like what Pastor John Nielsen wrote in an email exchange about this text, since we're preaching the same text this fall. He said, quote, the gospel is not a Jerusalem thing. It's a Jesus thing. The gospel is not a Jerusalem thing. It's a Jesus thing. Don't you? I just love that sentiment. And this applies to the next section well, as we have a test case for the gospel itself. Is the gospel bound to a certain culture and way of life, or a region, or ethnicity, or is the gospel truly independent of all those things? And so our second and last major heading, entrusted with the gospel, explains much of this in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Please have your Bibles open to that chapter. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been trusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for, my, for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So the gospel of free grace has been entrusted to Paul, to Peter, 
and the other apostles, of course, to different sets of people. And of course, Paul not only preached to the Gentiles, but also to Jews, but primarily his mission was to the Gentiles. And so this second major heading entrusted with the gospel can be organized with three more subheadings. Is this the faithful gospel ministry is never done in vain? That's number one. Titus as a gospel test case, second subheading. And finally, number three, spying on gospel freedom. Well, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, it's remarkable to note that Paul spent a lot of time in ministry and ministry preparation, totaling, we, we could see here, 17 years from his autobiographical account. Outside of the scope of the Jerusalem apostles, the original apostles, for the most part, and churches all in that region. And you kind of think, conversion on the road to Damascus, visit from Christ, the resurrected Christ, and then boom, the Paul we know from the scriptures went out for ministry right away and wrote all these letters right off the bat. That's how sometimes we might think. But his conversion and continual sanctification process and ministry training and all of that, 17 years at least, that's pretty amazing and sounds relatable to us in a lot of categories in different ways. Paul says that he goes up to Jerusalem again with his faithful gospel uh, partners Barnabas and Titus by way of revelation. That's not uncommon in the New Testament. Paul is led by certain revelatory calls, and he is anxious to meet with the pillars, those main leaders, and the other apostles, an event many scholars equate to the Jerusalem council that Luke speaks about in Acts 15, or some could possibly say Paul's second trip earlier in Acts. We're not completely sure if this was his second or third trip, but nevertheless, he meets them, these pillars, the original apostles to tell them his mission was and is to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. He seemed anxious to hear the response because if these apostles said, nah, (laughs) that's actually not our gospel. We adhere to something different and the gospel shouldn't actually go out to the Gentiles, only to the Jews. He would have been crushed to be thinking, oh, I was running in vain for all these years. Or as J.B. B. Lightfoot, that wonderful New Testament scholar, translate from the Greek, run to no purpose at all. Well, thankfully, they agree, actually, on what the gospel is, on the purity of the gospel, and recognize, oh, the grace was given clearly to Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and Peter and to the others, to the Jews or the uncircumcised in verse 7 through 9. Not that one ministry was better off than the other or more important, but that God had ordained for this to pass and for the apostles to be used in this certain way. And so when Paul, Peter, and others cherish the gospel entrusted to them, verse 7, and seek to live out that calling faithfully, ministry is never done in vain or without purpose, even though we might be tempted to think so. But Paul was human. He was not divine or part divine. Paul was very human. And very anxious in the letters in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians, where he was involved in a very tense relationship with the Corinthian church and their separate set of false teachers, he didn't want to see them leave the faith and mark out his ministry with them in vain. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5 is similar. He says, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But still... You can sense the relief to know that even though these apostles were apart for almost two decades almost, 
They were on the same page, so to say, of what the true gospel is and who to reach with this gospel message. So again, the subheading number one, faithful gospel ministry is never done in vain. Even if people reject the true gospel, the effort to proclaim this to sinners is never done in vain. I have to remind myself frequently. Part of Paul's comfort in all this and learning of the integrity of the gospel is seeing the result of our second subheading, Titus, as a gospel test case. Titus, what a wonderful gospel test case. Verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Titus, some of you know, is a Gentile believer. He was really instrumental in helping the reconciliation of the frayed relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church. He was a trusted sidekick to Paul in his ministry, essential in the gospel ministry to Crete. And to their great pleasure and joy, they saw that the Jerusalem Christian leaders, led by the original apostles, who Paul calls them the pillars, Peter, James, and John, in verse 9, were thankfully not in agreement with the false teachers, thanks be to God, who said Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Not that the early church leaders didn't have their slip-ups and misunderstandings of the gospel and its implications, as Dr. Nielsen will be preaching from next week's text, but at the core of this theological matter, they are of the same mind. It might not seem like a big relief to us, but imagine doing ministry for 17 years, seeing Gentiles come to faith apart from the law and only by the grace of God through Christ alone, only to see the original apostles who were with Christ on earth not aligned with that. As one scholar notes, this wasn't only a validating encouragement for Titus himself and his, and his true faith in the true gospel, but for the readers of this letter, to the majority of the Galatian Gentile churches out there, what a relief, what a validating encouragement that they came to a true saving faith in the true gospel that proved that the gospel of grace is truly free to all who believe in Christ, not based on ethnicity, tradition, or even culture. Isn't that true? Greater than all the identities the world places on us and labels us, or even what we might slip into thinking personally, greater than all those things is our identity in Christ. Now to our final and third subheading, spying on gospel freedom. Spying on gospel freedom. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Dr. Phil Riken labels this letter the freedom letter and notes that scholars call Galatians one of the chief documents on Christian liberty. Yet false teachers secretly are found amongst almost every church, it seems, Niving, testing, provoking, and distorting. We see that in all different types of churches in the New Testament and all the letters, and we could probably say the same thing even today. These false brothers, perhaps some of the same people who are infiltrating the Galatian churches, wanted to bring these gospel-freed believers back into spiritual slavery. That is, back to being condemned under the law and converted to pre-Christ Jewish traditions. Again, Frank Nealman said so well that these brothers, false brothers, they wanted to, quote, turn back the clock to a different era of salvation history 
again, most prominently through the physical rite of circumcision. Not that previously physical circumcision ever saved, but to that era. And note that wonderful statement at the end of verse 5. They didn't budge one bit to these false brothers and wanted to see the true gospel preserved. It says what? For you, and that's in the plural, for all of you, preserved for you. He loved these Gentile Christians in Galatia and was their gospel freedom fighter. The first, of course, being pointed back to Christ himself on our behalf. And now Paul, whose ordained mission was to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, never backed down and fought many battles so that they could be confident in the gospel they had received from their great God. And so our passage concludes with the blessing on Paul and Barnabas to continue to bring the gospel to the Gentiles with a concluding statement that speaks of the implications of the gospel. Look at our final verse, chapter 2, verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Remember what we discussed last week on what the gospel is. The gospel is what God has done on our behalf and not what we do for God. The gospel is always what God has done on our behalf. So when we respond in obedience, such as remembering to reach the poor, and this could have historically been a reference to those suffering in Jerusalem from the famine, that is what we call an implication or consequence or after effect of receiving this true gospel. The gospel received makes us new creation that then begins to act and move in ways that reflect the goodness of the gospel. Just like loving others. We love others because Christ first loved us. Gospel and then implications. Or some, calls this, uh, some call this the indicatives of the gospel leads us to the empowerment to obey the imperatives or implications of the gospel. You know, as I took a step back from this rather lengthy sermon text, I marveled and thought, the autobiography of Paul was not meant to simply highlight what a great righteous guy this is or what a good adventure story, but it really was meant to highlight the sovereign hand of Almighty God and how grateful we are to see how God shaped Paul's life for God's purpose. And you know what? The same God who shaped Paul's life, whether you really sense that and see that in perfection right now, the same God who shaped Paul's life shapes your life also for his glory. And that leads us into our application, to our first way to apply this text to our lives. Very simply, be thankful. And I know that's such a simple way to start our application, but be thankful for God's sovereign work over the gospel spread to the Gentiles and then uh, to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Thankful that Paul received his mission because you know what, everyone, look around. We're the direct result of that initial mission, if you ever thought of that. That we are Gentiles who believe in the gospel passed down that was first entrusted to the, the apostles. Scholars say you could uh, translate that word in the Greek and interchange that to nations or Gentiles. And so let us take time to be thankful for Paul's conversion and work in our conversion and gospel work. Secondly, to apply this is expect, expect opposition and even persecution. When you stick 
to the true gospel. Expect opposition and even persecution when you stick to the true gospel. The temptation is to compromise the gospel to win more people. We don't need to do that. I could wear a full suit up here and preach or wear skinny jeans up here. Well, you, don't, you definitely don't want to see that. And that really doesn't make any difference at the end of the day, right? But if we change the gospel at all, talk about sin less to not offend, disregard the divinity and humanity of Christ, talk about faith plus this and that in order to be saved, or try to convince people we're actually pretty good innately inside, we would be selling out to avoid opposition and persecution. We don't need to do that. And so church, flee any temptation to try to make the gospel more acceptable to the world. Remember that the message of the cross in 1 Corinthians says, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So stay true to the gospel because we see the fruit of what happens when you do so. What Paul and the others did 2,000 years ago. Number three is become a gospel freedom fighter. Become a gospel freedom fighter. Not When we talk about Christian freedom, we're most definitely not talking about licentiousness, is a fancy way of just saying to have a license to continue to just go off and sin. That's ludicrous. That's an offensive thing to God. But being a gospel freedom fighter is proclaiming and defending the freedom from the burden of the law's condemnation over you because of Christ's finished work. As I shared last week, growing up very pharisaical and concerned only about with the outward I needed a gospel freedom fighter to say, Robin, you're you're only saved by Christ's perfect work. You can't add one bit to that on your own. And of course, that essential truth, that same liberating truth, liberated that wonderful reformer Martin Luther some 500 years ago from his overburdened monkishness to liberation in Christ alone. I I have a close relative that recently told me that someone at her very, I think, gospel-centered church, I know this church, this one lady was starting to lead herself and others down a very dangerous path of trying to adhere to actually reverting back to Old Testament laws. It was very strange. When my, my relative was, was sharing this, I, I was just puzzled. How could one want to go back? And she and her followers stopped eating pork, shellfish, and the list goes on and on, wanting the ceremonial and food laws to overshadow pro- perhaps unconsciously, the true finished work of Jesus Christ. And I was like, this happens still in this day and age? And I wonder if a study in her women's group would be enormously helped by a close Bible study in this letter of Galatians. But instead of just crossing my arms and saying, this is ridiculous, how could they be so foolish? I can have compassion for this. Because nobody is immune to our sinful nature that tries to convince us, that whispering in our ear, to convince us with subtleties, oh, go back to ways that enslave. Go back to a life that yearns to earn our way ritualistically, traditionally, or spiritually into God's good graces. But that's why we need gospel freedom fighters who will fight for the unadulterated gospel in our churches. Perhaps you'll need to call someone up this week concerned with their wayward understanding of how the gospel works and what it entails and the freedom that is in Jesus Christ. 
Lastly, our final application is be careful about our own cultural additions to the gospel. Be careful about our own cultural additions to the gospel. Just like the Jerusalem church had to be careful, we need to be careful. I'm not talking about gospel contextualization here, but how in our blind spots, we may be saying with culture, you need to add so-and-so to your faith to be right with God. This is my second week here, friends, so I have so much to learn. And in terms of culture, I really hope Westminster can be a place. If this is not something we are great at right now, and at this point I really have no idea, that this would be a place where we can feel comfortable inviting non-Christians to this service, to a Bible study, to an outing, to men's and women's group that you're already telling me that you're wanting to do. And not only so that we can feel comfortable ourselves, but people who haven't been to a church in a while or maybe never ever stepped into a worship service would also feel comfortable and welcomed here. And again, that could already be happening, happening wonderfully at WBC, but let's pray this be a conviction of ours. Not that we compromise the gospel or our convictions, nor cater to worldliness just to become more appealing, but by people loving the gospel of grace so much in joy that others might say, I want what they have. And of course, the Sunday Lord's Day worship service is primarily and in priority for believers. But for any friends or coworkers or neighbors to come into these doors and say, I want what they have. To hear a preached gospel of free grace every week so that the Holy Spirit can do his work and use that word and regenerate hearts to God. And we don't need to attract them to our culture, our way of doing things, even our storied history, but attract them by our love for Christ, our love for his word, and our love for one another. Let the world know we are his disciples by our love for one another. That's gospel implications. And let our cultural identity be immensely Christocentric, brothers and sisters. And so far, as I've talked to many of you, had meetings in my office or on phone calls, I'm seeing that exemplified in your faithful lives here. And I say, and I've already prayed this, I say amen and praise be to our God. And let that be some of the encouragement to you, Westminster Presbyterian Church. And to say, Lord, please let that continue and increase even more. And brothers and sisters, the church, including Westminster, is entrusted with the treasure of all treasures, this good news, so let's not make it about us, but about Christ, Christ, Christ alone. But I have to look at my blind spots also. I was thinking I have to really examine how I go about ministry. Am I making an appeal to Christ alone? Or am I sprinkling in my own cultural mandate to my discipleship? Any modern-day equivalents to making Titus get circumcised? I think we can all use some prayer to see through these things. Because, again, the gospel is not a Jerusalem thing. The gospel is not an Elgin thing. The gospel is not a Korean thing nor an American thing. The gospel is not just a Presbyterian thing. The gospel is not cornered by our culture here. The gospel is a Jesus thing, and he is sovereign over all. And we say thanks be to God for that truth. So let's proclaim the gospel boldly and fight as gospel freedom fighters and press on for gospel freedom in Christ Jesus alone. Let's pray.
So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son to die on our behalf by the shedding of his blood. We are forgiven. Thank you that Christ exemplified our freedom from the tyranny of sin and our condemnation under the law by going to that rugged cross and being raised again on that third day. Thank you for raising up the early gospel freedom fighters for our sake, from the first apostles to the early church, through the Reformation, and now to our century. And may that fight go on as the proclamation of this truth goes to the ends of the world. For your glory, and in the loving name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.